When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Welcome to the Rabbit Hole Detectives, a podcast where I, Dr. Kat Jarman, Richard Coles and Charles Spencer chase the provenance of historical objects, both real and metaphorical. Each episode, we set one another the task of finding out as much as we can about a particular subject to present a comprehensive understanding of the origin stories of stuff. After all, everything has a history. It just depends on how far down the rabbit hole you're prepared to go. And at the end of it all, our disembodied voice pronounces a winner. So hello again, rabbit holies. Hello, Kat. Hey, Kat. Good to be back. How's everyone today? I'm very, very well, thank you. Yeah, I'm ready for this. My nostrils are slightly inflamed with the scent of victory because I'm steaming through this series. (laughs) And in spite of very, very, very idiosyncratic marking, and also I have to say some quite ungentlemanly play from some of my fellow contestants and nevertheless seem to be sweeping it all before me but pride comes before a fall doesn't it yeah. well it really does hall mods for fall we have the same thing what do you say hall mods stood for fall Norwegian, Norwegian. i love it so much and is it exactly the same <laughs> yes. Much. yes yeah. basically we are norwegian aren't we Ken? basically yes I mean, you obviously are norwegian Charles. yes scandy you know 23 and me that um look at the past, I come up with quite a lot of uh, Scandinavian blood. Yeah. yeah, what about you? 89% Ketri, that's right. according to Ancestry. <laughs> that's right. It's very specific, isn't it? Really specific. There's like two genes from centuries, <laughs> we and know. that's why I'm the way I am. But Northampton was in Viking hands for quite a while. We dreamt of Northampton. We never got that far. <laughs> Fair enough. So are we all ready for, for this week's rabbit holes? Have you done your research this time? Where oh, are your notes? Meticulous prep. Yeah. Has the success gone to your head, Richard? So you, don't, you haven't actually been working so hard? It has, actually, yes. <laughs> <laughs> what is it again? What's this programme again? <laughs> <laughs> I know you've been signing books, haven't you? How many have you done? 13,000. That's quite impressive. Do you... Because I've signed books, lots of books and I, I sort of almost forget my signature. Yes, yeah, I'm saying a word. That's saying a word over and over again, it sort of loses its meaning. Yes. Yeah. And I was doing a book signing once and a lady, she said she'd just come from Las Vegas. And I said, oh, where are we doing that? She said, we went to see Barry Manilow and we talked a bit. And anyway, I signed a book. Then at the end of the queue, she came back and she opened the book and I'd signed it, Barry Manilow. <laughs> <laughs> you have to collect his item. Yes. We sort of had to concentrate, but you can't okay. concentrate for... No, because oh. they talk to you at the same time. And you go into sort of neutral mode and yeah. then you slip. Yeah. Yeah. Well, your, your signature's just one word. Well, not when I'm a book person. Oh, um, you no, have I two do Charles signatures. Spencer. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, in the olden days, uh, you know, traditionally people with titles just signed their 
title as opposed to their first name, but I think it looks a bit pompous now. Well, I mean, if you had a long title, it'd be a nightmare, wouldn't it? So there was a, a person at school with me a few years ahead called the McKillicuddy of the Reeks. <laughs> and that was his title. And I don't know if he just signed it Reeks. <laughs> Do you know if you're a bishop, you sign with a cross and then your name and then your diocese. And there was a lovely one who was plus Archibald the Arctic. It all sounds like drag names, doesn't it? That's very good. Excellent. Well, should we go into our rabbit holes? Down <laughs> I think we already were. But... Yeah, sorry, that's, can we come out that's of them? Can, yeah. we come out of them? can we go to our actual rabbit holes? So we yeah. meant to go down. So we were given our subjects last week and we've all researched. So Richard, you're going to start... This week, and I wonder if you've researched this in a sort of practical and experimental way, or if you've done the online version, because you're uh, leading us off into the world of terrible delicacies. Terrible delicacies. I have researched this because I am, if I see something on a menu that seems really outlandish, I have to try it. I think honour requires it. But one of the things I've discovered in the course of our conversations is that Norway is the centre of the universe. Oh, yeah. Well, so obviously true. Yes. Well, it's not obviously true. It's a counterintuitive truth. But I want to start in Norway. Jacques, Kat Jarman, as representative of your people, Lutefisk. How do you say it in Norwegian? Lutefisk. Lutefisk. Lutefisk, yeah. Do you, on Christmas Day, Charlie, I don't know if you've ever had it, on Christmas Day, it's traditional in Norway and other Nordic countries actually to eat lutefisk. And it's a cod with potatoes and peas, basically, isn't it? And maybe a sauce. Although I understand the sauce is regional. In some parts of Norway, they give you a mustard sauce. In other parts, it's rather a bland sauce. I don't know what it is in your part, Kat. We actually don't have it. Where I, we have pork. Oh, OK. Live, so it's not everywhere, but especially on the coast. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, I was not going to bring that is up. Is it a coastal thing, then? It is especially a coastal. But yeah. Not a coast in Norway. Yeah. Exactly. Norway's mostly coastal, yes. right, isn't it? It's disgusting, is the short answer. <laughs> I once found a, a T-shirt. When I, I tried it when I was in Norway. To describe what it is, it's stockfish. Air-dried, usually cod, sometimes ling. But then it's preserved by the application of lye wood ash and you know obviously it began with the need to preserve perishable food in order to provide for a hard winter whatever it might be but it ended up unspeakable if you treat stockfish with lye it turns into a sort of jelly which is so alive in its way it almost glows in the dark i think it actually does glow in the dark. i think there is something phosphorescent <laughs> in lutefisk to eat it you have to basically soak it in water, which you frequently change for, I think, 10 days or something ridiculous to get the lie out because it is so, so disgusting. It has a pH of about 12 or something until you rinse it out. And it is this jellyish, phosphorescent, stinking thing. And I got a, a T-shirt in Norway because I was so proud of having tried this. And I didn't know what it said, but a Norwegian friend, my friend Arnfinn, translated it for me and it said, Lutefisk, you taste it twice, once on the way down, and once on the way up. <laughs> <laughs> Lutefisk, yeah. not great. No. But my word, the Nordic countries can outdo that for disgustingness. The most disgusting thing I have ever tasted, I share with Anthony Bourdain, the great chef, who said this was the most disgusting thing he'd ever tasted. Imagine, if you like, that you're in Iceland. Perhaps it's your first trip to Iceland. You know little of Icelandic customs and cuisine. And an Icelandic friend offers you a plate, and on that plate there are these little cubes of what looks like a pungent cheese, little white cubes of cheese. And they go, try it, and everyone in the room goes quiet and looks at you expectantly. You know, it's a trial. Ordeal by <laughs> Hakal, it's called. Anyway, I took a cube of this cheese on a toothpick and I ate it. And they said to me, what does it taste like to you? And I said, it tastes like fish that's rotted in piss. <laughs> and they said, 
There's a reason for that. <laughs> oh, goodness. Hackerl is Greenland shark, which is buried on a beach or something for months, and it putrefies in its own urine. I don't know if you know about Greenland sharks, but they, they expel their urine through their bodies. They don't have other means to get rid of it. So their flesh is toxic because it's so high in ammonia. Leave it to putrefy and it turns into the most memorable snack you will ever have. But it is so bad, it tastes as bad as it sounds. It really does taste like meat that is putrefied in its own urine. It is so disgusting, it actually made me cry. Oh my it really made goodness. me cry. All the Icelanders kind of laughed hugely. And I thought, well, there can be no delicacy worse than hakal. No. And also, who's the first person who ate that? It's someone starving, isn't it? It's well, not it out of choice. Be. So many of these delicacies begin because they deliver you from starvation, I think. And yes. they get associated with survival, I think. And then maybe that becomes mythologised. Becomes... Mm. But do you think Hakkar was bad? <laughs> Is it getting worse? What about kivyak? Have you ever had that? No. No. It's a Greenlandish dish. And it is, I think, probably the worst delicacy of all. A baby seal is disemboweled and then stuffed with little orcs that are left to ferment within the baby seal over many, many days, uh, then eaten at celebrations. So you've got little orcs, dozens and dozens of them, squashed into a disemboweled baby seal and left again to ferment, effectively. And that produces kivyat, which they absolutely adore, and it's served at great feasts. Do they eat the seal, or that's just the case? You eat the whole thing. You sort of slice it up and on you go. It's like a scotch egg, but... It's really... <laughs> I mean, I would put scotch egg in disgusting delicacy. I know oh. you both love them, but I think they are no. a crime against gastronomy and civilization. <laughs> but never mind that. But there was a terrible case in 2013 when there was a big wedding feast and they needed some of this stuff, but they couldn't get any little orcs. So they thought they'd improvise, improvise, improvise. So they stuffed the baby seal with eider ducks instead. Oh. And then left it to ferment in the way. Trouble was, was that the eider ducks didn't ferment anything like as well as the little orcs. And as a result, the principal guest at the feast, or the father of the bride, I think it was, died of botulism. Oh, yes, okay. well, and it, do they pluck them? Because the, the reason you use eider down is because it's a very thick feather <laughs> I think base. the texture of this delicacy <laughs> is the least of your issues when <laughs> yeah. you have to eat it. So they had a funeral for this poor guy, but they didn't realise that it was the delicacy that was... So they served it again and they killed his daughter with botulism. Oh, that's, a, that's bad, isn't it? So avoid that one. Thank you. I, I'm going to have to take all these names down. Well, let me give you a couple more. Mm. There's balut, which is a great delicacy in the Philippines, and that is um, a duck's egg. Now, the duck egg is left in conditions. It's a fertilised egg, and it's left mm. in conditions for the embryo to start to develop. Mm. And then when the embryo is half developed, mm. it's then cooked. And then the sort of amniotic fluid, if that's what it is, and the semi-developed embryo form a sort of rich, gamey soup which is highly prized, and you take the top off the egg and you suck the contents out. So check they're all right, they hold it up to the light to see how developed the embryo is. So it's cooked, sort of decomposed embryo of a duck. Slurp, 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 yum, 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 if you like no, that no, sort no, of no, thing. No. Do you I, think some, some of these sort of start as dares? Do they start as sort of, you know, I dare you to eat this? And then well, it becomes I, just, a... I think it's because pleasure and disgust 
are surprisingly close. And the nearer you get to discuss, perhaps the nearest you get to popping out in pleasure, which is why you get, for example, high game, which was a great favourite of my grandparents' generations. They wouldn't have dreamed of eating a pheasant if it weren't leaping with microbial Maggot infested. Yeah, well, that yes. was a thing, wasn't it? Yes, till there's sort of all sorts going on. I've got more for you, though, John. <laughs> Even better. Oh, my God. Kazo Matsu. Okay. Kazumatsu. Have you ever no. come across that? No. If you should go to Sardinia on your holidays in the summer months, if you fancy some pecorino, ask for pecorino regular. Don't ask for kazumatsu, which is a Sardinian version, of it's a version of pecorino. So you take a pecorino, a whole pecorino, mm. you slice it open and you leave it out in the sun and it provides the most irresistibly congenial environment for cheese flies. Did you know there were cheese flies? <laughs> so the cheese flies buzz in, attracted by this pecorino stinking in the sun, and they infest it, and they lay their eggs in it, and it develops into lava. And a combination of that, plus the excrement that they create, makes the cheese soupy and creamy and creamy and soupy. And at the point when the maggots appear, that's when it's considered best to eat. Problem. The maggots leap. Now, if you can do this properly, you take your slice of kazumatsu and you have to be really careful. You eat it while the maggots are leaping and they go down <laughs> with you. Problem is, is that the maggots sometimes attach themselves if they're particularly enterprising maggots with a bit of spunk to them, to your intestinal wall and can cause terrible injuries as a consequence of that. The other thing is, is they can also blind you because they can uh, <laughs> strike you in the eye because they leap so vigorously because oh, right. they're full of cheese, yes. basically. So you have to be really careful and you have to make sure the maggots... So you eat it like... You can't really see this in a podcast, but you have to sort of dodge <laughs> the jumping maggots as you eat it. But for, for the snowflakes, what you do is you take a slice of cheese and then you put it in a folded paper bag and that starves the maggots of oxygen. And uh, gradually the popping sound of them jumping around diminishes. And when they stop popping, then it's good to eat. But don't delay, because if they start to go off themselves, really bad. Now, I've taken you on a trip around the world a bit, haven't I? And yet Britain, England itself, can produce some truly disgusting delicacies. Jelly deals, for example. Mm. I don't want to swim into your territory, mm. Kat. Mm. But the jelly deals, so famously beloved of Cockneys and the East End of London and, I don't know, various people. An eel is itself a hard sell for some, yes. I think. But cooked in a spiced stock, which then becomes gelatinous, is a very hard sell. And if you... If you look at a little tub of jelly deals, as still sold in some places in the east end of London, it looks like someone with bronchitis has just cleared their throat. <laughs> it's so disgusting. I've never tried it. Have You've you never tried, tried it? a jelly? I've tried it, yeah. I haven't either. No. Not great. But do you know what? Here's one, and I, and I know this because of my former profession as a vicar, stinking bishop cheese. Mm -hmm. Are you aware of it? Yes. yes. Well, stinking bishop cheese is the sort of smelliest of the English cheeses. It's made from milk from a rare breed of cow in Gloucestershire. And then it's a washed rind cheese, notoriously smelly, but it's washed with a perry made from the stinking bishop pear. And when you smell that cheese, again, you start to think, how bad was it that this seemed doable, <laughs> let alone a good idea? And the reason why it's so striking to many is that it smells exactly like a human body that's gone over. So vicars, funeral directors, police officers, medics, all say the nearest thing you can get 
to a decomposing corpse is stinking bishop cheese. I think we, we're going to have to move on to your favourite fact after that, really. I don't know where else to go. Now, ortolan was one of the great dishes of a, the gastronomy of France, noted for its cruelty, I think, or the ends to which it will go to achieve the rarest of pleasures. And ortolan perhaps, is the greatest of all. Tiny little songbirds which migrate, and when they migrate your way, you catch them in nets, and then they are kept in the dark or sometimes blinded, and fed and fed and fed until they become... They're, they're tiny, they're only the sort of size of a thumb, really, 25 grams or thereabouts. They're fed and fed and fed, and they become enormously fat, at which point they're drowned in armoniac, and that's the end of them. But it's only halfway through the cooking process, because then they are cooked and served. And they are said to be so delicious that you hold them by the beak and you put them in your mouth and you suck out all the goodness and you chew the feet and everything. And it's supposed to be this kind of sensational pleasure of savoury delight, unlike no other. So delightful that you put a towel over your head as you eat it so none of the lovely vapours escape. It's also said that God can't see you doing it because it is such a cruelty. It is illegal, I should say, €6,000 fine if you're caught doing it. And the most famous person or the most famous occasion on which Autonon were eaten recently was the last meal of François Mitterrand, the great socialist president of France. Like great French socialists, he had rather... <laughs> he lived high on the hog. New Year's Eve, 1995. He was dying of cancer on his last legs. Wrapped in blankets, he sat at the head of the table. 30 friends and family invited. They dined on oysters and foie gras and ortolan. Illegally obtained, but by then he was past caring. Very good, thank you. I think we've got a comment from our disembodied voice as well. Richard, you mentioned Ortolan being banned across the EU. The cheese that you mentioned, the Casu Marzu, is also banned in the EU and carries a fine of €40,000 for both the seller and the buyer, although the local Sardinian government have, along with the local worm cheese producers, and why wouldn't they, tried to get an exemption from the laws since it's been made the same way for over 25 years. And you also mentioned the uh, little orc birds. They're actually buried and left to ferment in the carcass for between three to 18 months, oh my word. rather than a few days. <laughs> uh, and kiviak is eaten, as you said, either whole, bones and all, but also by biting off the bird's head and then sucking out the juices. The fermented little orc. Indeed. If you're going to do this, folks, please check that it's not Ida first, because then you'll be in big trouble. Mm. On that note, and seeing as you already... Act you're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. She lined up my subject quite nicely, talking about eels. Yeah. I'm going to be delving into the eel rabbit hole. Blimey. Because eels, I'm genuinely interested in eels. Not because I eat them. I think I've only eaten eel about once. But they have the most amazing history and the, the science. So I didn't know this until a couple of years ago. But we've only literally in the last sort of few years properly worked out where they come from. So all the European eels and the American eels... The ones that we see in rivers, although they're critically endangered now, so we don't have many of them left. Um, they're not born here at all, and we've never seen them breed. They all migrate about 10,000 kilometres from the Sargossa Sea. So, so eels don't 
live their whole lifespan in no, England. They don't come from, none of them are born in Britain, in Europe, or in anywhere in Europe. So every single eel that you see or that you would have eaten in the Thames or whatever come from the Sargossa Sea. Which is in the Atlantic. That's extraordinary. Which I is, had no idea. Did you know that? No. <laughs> it's <laughs> unbelievable. I didn't know this. And actually, how they breed has been pretty much a mystery. So you can't breed them in captivity, and people haven't actually seen it. And it was not understood at all how they developed or bred. But what actually happens is that they're all, they spawn in the Sargossa Sea. And then they live there for, I think, up to about three years and swim around as the larvae. Yeah, between seven months and three years. And then they come longer and thinner, turn into glass eels, and then they migrate across to Europe. And then when they come into the freshwater systems, they're called elvis, and that's the sort of smaller ones. They then go bigger and they get colour, so they go yellow, so yellow bellies, that's the eel. Oh, that's what people in Lincolnshire yeah, are known as, yes, yellow bellies, because yes, of the eel fishery. Yes, the eels, exactly, that's where that comes from. And then finally, so over the next, that's over six to 20 years, and then eventually they turn into silver eels. But then at that point, they migrate back to the Sargossa Sea. What? <laughs> and that's where they spawn and reproduce. But the first one, somebody worked this out, I think in about 1930s, literally it was the first time they, they worked out where they came from because nobody had ever seen the little baby eels in until, Europe. Until 1930, we didn't know yeah. that eels all spawned in the... Even then, it wasn't quite sure. So the no. first time we'd been able to track them was in 2018. That was the first time someone managed to put satellite trackers on eels when they <laughs> yes. were migrating back. And that confirmed. And what? that confirmed probably, but we still haven't seen them actually reproduce a spawn. The elusive eel. The elusive and mysterious eel. And they have been really mysterious because they don't seem to reproduce. And that's partially because they don't actually reproduce until that very final stage. And they don't actually develop their reproductive organs until that point either. So for literally a couple of thousand years... People have been trying to work out how they breed because they've been dissected and they literally had no idea. So a lot of uh, history on time have tried to work out how it did. Aristotle thought that they generated spontaneously because there were never any baby ones. They weren't seen reproducing. Pliny the Elder suggested that they rubbed themselves, or he saw them rubbing themselves against rocks. And so he thought that that meant that particles of skin fell off their bodies and they turned into baby eels. <laughs> That was his theory. But were eels actually slowing off their... They sort of rub against the rocks, I've seen them apparently. do that in yeah. the busk, So he assumed that that's how the baby eels were created. So lots of different theories. And then in the 19th century, Sigmund Freud got really interested in oh, this sort yes. of... Because, you know, why are they not reproducing? You know, what's, what's this sort of very odd thing? So he actually, quite early on in his career, decided to study this and decided to dissect them to look for their testicles. Mm. So nobody had ever found eel testicles. So he spent weeks and weeks uh, dissecting, I think, about 400 eels, but not really finding any male or any test testicles in any of them. Eventually, he found testes in one of them, but that was apparently just a fluke because they don't develop them, so they don't actually turn into eels. What are these rogue testicles doing in an eel which doesn't need them? Well, exactly. So normally they don't develop them until... They, oh. go no, they go back. back so when they, they go back to the spawning grounds, yes. then they need them. Yeah. But yes. they don't need them when they're just swimming around the systems for 20 or 30 years. But this is, you know, it's led to so many interesting beliefs about eels. And one of the reasons why you could eat eels during Lent was because they were seen as asexual. Hmm. So the church believed that eating eels could not excite sexual appetites in a way that eating meat would. So that was absolutely I, fine. They've so. never been down Hackney on a Saturday <laughs> night, is all I can say to that. <laughs> <Maybe> not. <laughs> But they've been, uh, in England, they've been hugely important to 
actually to national identity, the eel has been a symbol of England. So going back to early medieval and medieval times, there's all this imagery of England as an eel. And on the Bayeux tapestry, there are eels. So there's one scene where I think it's in Normandy and Harold, who's a defeated Anglo-Saxon king, uh, is depicted above all these eels. And there's another Englishman who's holding an eel upside down. So he's holding it by the tail. And that's meant to be symbolising, or the interpretation is that's the English throne slipping away from him. And wasn't there in Magna Carta, one of the rights that was fundamentally sought in Magna Carta was the protection of eel trapping. Yeah. So it's, it's a very cornerstone issue in English life at that time. It really was. And it was uh, as a sort of source of wealth on so many eels and they were used as payment as well. So if you look in Doomsday Book, it lists rent that you could pay to your landlord or to your, the, your owner of your property in eels. Good. So there's actually over 500,000 eels owed as rent in Doomsday Book in the 11th century. That's how you'd pay them. And you'd have a, a stick of eels, so 25 eels to a stick. And that was protein essentially how right? yeah. yeah, but it was massively, massively important. But it was also... A uh, huge part of illegal economies. So there's lots of issues and things with theft of eels and eels being pirated from ships because it's, they're so valuable. They weren't just sort of popular as food, but they're valuable as well. Hang on. I can see why, you know, as a food, as a protein, yeah, great. Yeah. But people just sort of really thought they were prestige creatures. Like Charles's falcons last week. <laughs> Almost. I mean, they're extremely common, but clearly they were both, and they were a bit of a delicacy, not a terrible one, but a sort of. Well, I mean, smoked eel is very Michelin star now, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, you get some really and nice also, ones. Also, would it be. You mentioned the church being fine with it, but would it be considered a fish? Could you have eaten it on a Friday? Yes, yeah, so it was It was allowed. So it would be very useful because a lot of native English fish are quite bland. What do you call but them in Norwegian? All. 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 Yeah, so not too, not too far. I used to go lobster potting on the west coast of Scotland when visiting my mother, and we'd occasionally catch a conger eel. That's Ooh, a fairly unpleasant thing. No, no, it's a lot of teeth. Got to be very careful. Are conger eels eels, or are they actually some other creature that we described? They may be some of the other sorts of things, like electric eels are not actually eels at all. I've forgotten about that. Yeah, <laughs> so they're not eels. They're just called eels. They're imposters. So they are very, very rich, and there's lots of illness and deaths. Henry Charles? the First. Yes. Henry the First died from a surfeit of lampreys. Yes. Oh, have you seen a lamprey? It's a horrible thing. It's disgusting. It's, disgusting. Disgusting. it's yeah. not actually an eel, is no, it? No, it's not. People are arguing about whether it was actually eel or a lamprey yeah. that, Wasn't he, it that King killed John? him. No, it's Henry the First. So Henry the First had a weak stomach. I mean, he was a sturdy chap, but his doctors were always worried about him eating rich food. And in the late 1135, he'd been on a hunting trip, having a very stressful time with almost a civil war with his daughter, Matilda. And he went for it on a sort of uh, lamprey dinner. <laughs> and they said, well, only one of the key historians has that as the cause, but that's what he's been put he down was, as. He was banned from eating eels, really. Too I, rich. I associate with the death of King John, or was that the surfeit of pears? One of them died of a surfeit of pears. I they? don't know about that. I don't know. But I know Henry I did because... Um, has written about it. Yeah. <laughs> but in one of your lovely books. <laughs> we partially don't see them so much now anymore because they are critically endangered. And are they? Uh, yeah, so there's. But why, Kat? What's huge... gone wrong? Or don't we know? Again? We don't know. We don't know. Something in the Saragossa Sea. Yeah, so it could be something to do with that. It could be things like hydroelectric mm. dams and things mm. like that messing with them. But they are almost completely gone. So it's a, a big issue. So should we not be eating them then? Well, 
I presume not a lot of them anyway, but I mean, there's... Can you farm clearly... them? You can't farm them. No, you can't. Yeah. This is part of the problem. You can't actually farm them. So it's difficult it's to the recover them. It's the signature dish, actually. One of the great restaurants in London called Quo Vardis, their signature dish is a smoked eel sandwich. Oh, uh, do you know what? It doesn't work for me. <laughs> I've actually been eel fishing in the Fens, because Ely, yes, of course, it comes from eels. eels, island of eels. Yeah. And I've been traditional eel fishing there in a coracle. You ever tried to steer a coracle? No, it it's doesn't. Impossible. Look, yeah. It's like you, being on a dodger. Yeah, you just spin around and around. Round and round and round you go, and you get them in. Is know. it a one-man vessel though? It's up to oh, you. Oh, very much one yes. man. Yes. You don't want to. You wouldn't want to crowd overcrowd no. your coracle. No. Yeah. You think of them as Welsh, don't you? Yes. Eelers in the fens, we're using them too. Yeah. Well, it's got no draft really, has it? It doesn't go down too far, does it? I suppose about as simple a vessel as you can get, yeah. and you can yeah. haul in your eels, which are yes. in like thing like lobster pots. Actually, they swim in, but they can't swim yeah, out. Yeah. Have what's your favourite eel fact? Kat? Well, it's two actually. One of them, which was, have you ever heard of feeging? No. no so this was one of the things odd. I came up, and it's to do with a sort of slightly illegal. It comes on the, the darker side of, of the eel trade, but it's got to do with horses and what you would uh, a horse dealer would do to liven up an older, broken down horse. Oh God. And so this was a, a practice that was quite common, certainly into the 18th century, and where you would take a live eel and put it up the horse's anus, uh, well, it was still alive, to perk it up. I'm backing up that one in the Grand National. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Ears up. Yes. And forward fast. So this was quite um, common and until it... later on, ginger was used instead. So the term to ginger up a horse. Oh. Was from inserting ginger into the horse's anus? Yes, instead of a live eel. But I mean, how long would the live eel last up a horse's arse? I think just long. enough for it to be sold to, and look perky. To and make it frisky. Like a, yeah, and jumping about and being... Presumably it's quite good at holding its breath, an eel. So. <laughs> <laughs> but imagine being the person who had that idea. I know, that's... Oh, no, that nag well, how did that start? Yeah, shove an eel up its arse. <laughs> sold! <laughs> That'll do it. So that was one of my... Actually, I think my favourite fact was that there was a, a medieval medicinal remedy which is just that to stop a nosebleed, you could snort eel skins. Really? Oh my goodness. That's not just prepared mad. eel yeah, skin into a powder or powder, something. Powder, eel skin. Maybe it works, I don't Maybe. know. Maybe, I haven't tried, so I don't think I want to. <laughs> Gosh, I don't know which I prefer out of those two. Yeah. Snorting powdered eel skin for a nosebleed. I think it's got to be the eel at the horse's bottom. Yes. I had a close encounter with a terrifying eel. I was in the Gili Islands of Indonesia, and we went to this temple. And one of my friends wasn't allowed in because they suspected her of menstruating. She wasn't, but they thought she might be, and that would the sacred eel wouldn't appear. And there's this kind of system of pools, an ancient temple, and then the bloke banged on the side of this pool, like a little low wall, and these giant eels slithered out, the most terrifying things I've ever seen, giant black eels. Mm. But do you think those are normal eels that just grew and grew and grew and grew? I don't know what's the... They might be, I suppose. Yeah, but before this, I assumed there were sea eels and freshwater eels. Yeah, me too. I had no idea, and I thought they were breeding like anything in, in our rivers. No, and they've crazy. all come from the Sagosa Sea, and that's yeah. And they, they start there and they end there. Yes. That's what I think is quite important. We don't know how they know, how they know where they're going for that far. I suppose all migrating animals do the same but sort of thing. But amazing that something so everyday... Yeah. should have such a mysterious, so yes. mysterious that we don't even know about it now. Even now we don't yeah. know the details, and I think that's so incredible. Like the um, success of Jedwood. <laughs> How did that happen? <laughs> similar, similar mystery. So there we go, that's my eels. And oh, I think that's brilliant. That, you told us a lot of new stuff there. Thank you. That leads us to you, Charles, on another cheerful 
Topic yes, I get week. the cheerful ones I've noticed. You so uh, normally us. it involves capital punishment or a lot of pain. Yes. Well, actually, I just get a lot of pain, I think, today because yeah. I'm doing the workhouse or poorhouse. Oh, God. And, you know, being poor in the olden days was obviously a, a desperate thing. But the last thing you really wanted to do was be put in one of these institutions. There's always been this problem in England really from about the 14th century, as to what to do in a community with your poor. And after the, the plague, the Black Death in the 1340s, that's when things really kicked off in terms of trying to address this as a, as a problem that was universal in this country. And so there's a succession of poor law acts, etc., through the 14th, 15th, 16th century. But the real problem comes when you're trying to legislate to look after the poor and they're not all poor, by the way. There's people who are infirm and therefore classified as non-self-feeders, I think we could reduce it to. And they get given um, this sort of help by the monasteries. And it's after the late 1530s when Henry VIII dissolves the monasteries that the community as a whole has to pick up the tab. And I'm afraid there's a lot of resonance when I'm looking at this problem with issues, social issues today, not just in England but around the world, when it becomes a bill that people are going to have to pick up on, they're very reluctant to do so. And the ones who are at the bottom of the heap are going to suffer most. Uh, that's my political text for the day. But essentially, you're looking at the landowners, the people who are capable of paying any tax, contributing to the welfare of the poor in their parish. And at first, this was more dignified. You would arrange a dole, a doling out of whether it's firewood or food or whatever, would be taken to their door. But this became ever more impractical as the numbers of dependents grew. And you have, by the 18th century, there's about 90,000 people in England who are in what, are, what we'd recognise as some form of poorhouse. But it's not really until the 1830s that things become more formalised. In fact, 1830 itself was a major pivot in all of this because there was a, a riot called the Swing Riots, which were a result of all sorts of factors in England. A rising population, it had gone up to about 15 million very quickly, and there were a lot of people returning wounded from the Napoleonic Wars. There was no work for them. And then by 1830, very basic threshing machines came in, which meant that a lot of people were left unemployed. And on top of bad harvests, and bad parliamentary acts setting the price of corn, there was a lot of desperation and there were many arrests for people destroying these newfangled threshing machines. They're called the swing riots because anonymous notes would be sent under the name of Captain Swing to landowners and parsons saying, we're going to get you because you're supporting things that are destroying our lives. And people were hanged. One man was hanged for knocking the hat off a member of the Bering family. Other people were sent as convicts to Australia. Home. Hanged? Yes. For knocking the hat off one of the bearing, the banking bearing. Yes. He was hanged for that? Yeah. Do you know why? Assault. Oh. I know, it's crazy. I tell you what, actually, an enormous number of people were condemned to death at this time. Yeah. And then it was arbitrary, the ones, it seems very arbitrary as to which ones got hanged and had the punishment followed through and, and which were pardoned. And he was obviously the unluckiest of the lot. Well, most death sentences were commuted to transportation, weren't they? Yes, and the transportation would be for a number of years, usually. It wouldn't be a permanent thing. You know, you'd be sent to Australia for a number of years. But going back to this, you end up with a, 
the government at the time in 1832 having a really good look at how do we look after this problem? How do we address it? And there is a sort of poor law act in, in 1834 that tries to address it, tries to make it a, a problem that has a sort of fixed end. How much bread does a man need? But the poor houses that spring up in the 19th century, we know from Dickens, you know, he's, he's writing Oliver Twist at this time, which isn't an entirely accurate representation of the problems at this time because Oliver probably wouldn't have needed more gruel because he would have had a decent diet. It would have been awful food. It would have been gruel and bread. and There probably wasn't so much singing either, right? <laughs> very, very little singing. <laughs> but there was a man actually called Bill Sykes. So Dickens was acquainted with poor houses because most of his family ended up in a debtor's prison at one oh. stage. And the man who owned the tallow shop over the road was called Bill Sykes. So there's a lot of influence of Dickens's own life in how he treated that story and how he addressed, as a reporter originally, this ghastliness. Because... I Oh, well, I am interrupted, but it's just a very striking thing, I think, in 19th century Victorian English literature, how much people are terrified of the workhouse. The shadow of the workhouse falls across so many lives. The terror of losing your liberty through debt or poverty or destitution in a way that's sort of unimaginable now, although it's not, very, not much fun being poor now, but then... Well, it was the end. I mean, you could get out. It wasn't a prison. But by the mid-19th, late-19th century, Victorian times... They were so ghastly, these places. Even in the mid-1840s, there was this thing called the Andover Union Scandal. Andover in Hampshire had been one of the centres of rebellion in the swing riots. And people cracked down on it very hard. They put these people into almost compulsory workhouses. And the idea was that they had to suffer. And a journalist from The Times went there, The London Times, and he noted with absolute disgust that people were acting, uh, falling on bones. You know, they were given bones. Going back to one of Cat's earlier topics, they were grinding bones, very hard work, to make fertiliser. Mm. But they were hiding bones, even bones that were taken from a churchyard when a new church was being built. They were hiding them and eating them, sucking out the marrow bone, from three or four months old bones from animals they'd eaten, that had been eaten, and human. And they would fight over this. And the nearest I can think of is scenes you see in concentration camp movies where people are desperately fighting for survival. It's interesting that we kind of tidy up those people just beyond the margins of our concern. Mm. Out of sight, out of mind, right? You lock them behind a door in the name of philanthropy or charity or whatever, but once mm. they're there, they can be appallingly neglected or ill-treated. They generally were, because most of these places, the larger workhouses, they became very difficult for parishes to sustain. So they became bigger and bigger institutions. They were overseen by guardians, and guardians were, on the whole, businessmen who wanted to cut costs right down, you know, rather like the school in Jane Eyre. These were not people who were looking to benefit the people who were in there. They were going to make it work for them. And even have this case of um, a master at Christmas in 1844, the one thing you're meant to do, because it's meant to have a basic Christian ethos, is to give a good Christmas dinner to your inmates. But he, he says, well, we're not having one this year, sorry. The people didn't pay enough money. Absolute lie, he's just pocketed the lot. And I guess also it's a ready source of cheap labour, isn't it? Mm. Oh, yes, and of child labour as well. So what they would do, I mean, some of the most terrifying things are if a man, for instance, registered to come into a poorhouse, he'd be inspected... There'd be a complete medical inspection, a look at how destitute he was. Then he had to bring his whole family too, and then the family would be divided up. And you'd have boys' sections and women's sections and men's sections and sections for the infirm. 
No care given, though, at all. The infirm and the elderly would be left in rooms just by themselves. No speaking. You weren't allowed to talk because it was hard labour, really. And parents would see your child for an hour on a Sunday. That was the life. Do you know, one of my ancestors was the master of a workhouse in Chester, yeah. and there's some correspondence preserved by him. And what's striking, well, so much of it is striking, but judgments on the moral character of those who were in the, they were the feckless poor, they were indigent, they somehow deserved their fate, and there was a quite righteous punishment in what was happening to them in a way which seems so harsh and so mean. You're absolutely right, Richard. This was the problem with the Victorians having this system. They saw a moral corruption, and they were dealing with this. They were containing it on society's behalf and profiting from it, and it was brutal. They were in rough uniforms. Apart from breaking up bones for fertiliser, they'd be picking out jute. Jute is a really tough material. They'd be using a spike all day to pick it apart and so it could be used. It was a very, very tough existence, and it went on for a very long time. You know, the last poorhouse, they were made illegal in 1930, but they weren't really stamped out completely till 1948 when they were taken on, really, a lot of the national health system took on a lot of the old poor houses and made them into places of uh, medical care. So was that sort of attitude as well changing then to...? Yes, it was. In fact, by the very late 19th century, attitudes were changing. The diet in the poorhouse got better, there was more variety. There was access in many of them to books. There were the odd outings, that sort of thing. And then it was unsustainable. It was just too brutal an existence, really. I have a friend, a very old parson, who lives at the Charter House in the city of London. And he remember, he grew up in Stoke-on-Trent. And he remembered it must have been in the 30s when he was a little boy at Christmas. His two maiden aunts would come for on holiday from the workhouse. And they sat there in brown uniforms, brown dresses, brown blouses, whatever. And they sat there and said nothing for they were so, I suppose, institutionalised to the workhouse. And every Christmas they just sat there, these two mute figures in their uniforms. Mm. In living memory, extraordinary. Mm, that's well, that, I mean, I, it's rather hard to have a, my favourite fact. But the thing I found most interesting, as an aside, really, as a bit of a rabbit hole, was that the great silent actor, Charlie Chaplin, was twice in a poorhouse growing up before the age of nine. He had an alcoholic father who abandoned the family and he and his half-brother Sidney were put into a couple of separate poorhouses and their mother Hannah essentially went mad and she was put into an institution and one day she discharged herself and they had a day out in Kennington literally outside the studio we were recording in the park there went to a coffee shop and then they had nothing they had nothing left so she went back to the, her poorhouse and they went back to theirs it's heartbreaking. And that's probably the inspiration, well, it is, to his first feature-length movie in 1921, The Kid, where he plays the tramp, his sort of trademark figure. There's a foundling child in that, and the whole story is an hour-long story, is about a child being abandoned by its well-meaning mother and then eventually being reconnected with her. And it's, it chimes very much with his sort of childhood dream of being reconnected with his mother properly. Yeah. Goodness. My grandmother, she would flinch to walk past St Mary's Hospital in Kettering because it had been the workhouse. Yeah. And when she was a little girl, 1900, it was doing that and it was, had imprinted itself on her. She well, you were terrified of it. Yeah. And then, of course, human nature, you looked down on those who were in it. Mm. Yeah. Charlie Chaplin remembered 200 of these children, of which he was one, marching down the street, two abreast, 
and everyone jeering at them, mocking them. For being you know. poorhouse kids. Yes. Incredible. Sorry, I, I know I, I can ruin the mood of most parties, but this is, <laughs> this is a particularly brutal subject. I mean, but you it's... didn't get onto executions, especially with a <laughs> note, but not really. There was an aside. Yeah. 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 Goodness. Gosh, well, awful. No, it's, just, it's truly mesmerising yeah. how awful it was and how people turned a blind eye, and it needed people like Dickens. And there was a, a journalist called James Greenwood in the 18th century who, who got into a poorhouse just from one night and he wrote about it and it shocked all of these pure self-congratulating Victorians into realising what was going on in their name. I think there's a, perhaps in our own time some of the worst examples you hear of failures in social care. Mm. Same kind of thing, people who are kind of put into care of one kind or another and it turns out to be imperfect in its execution. Yes. And because they are too problematic for us to think about, we don't mm. think about them, and they're left at the mercy of people who are sometimes really not qualified to care for them. Well, that was another problem here. The people who looked after the healthcare was terrible. Uh, Florence Nightingale was a great champion in the 1850s and 60s against the pathetic healthcare that was offered in these homes. And, you know, smallpox, which Kat spoke about recently, and measles, this was a hotbed. It just it went around like wildfire. And nurses were untrained. They tended to either be have very poor sight or very poor hearing or be alcoholics. They were just given that job and they had no idea what they were doing at all. Avoid workhouses, yeah? Yeah, yes. absolutely. Well, on that note, <laughs> I think we'll we'll wind it up for this week and we've gotten to our favourite part <laughs> where we get the completely undemocratic choice by our disembodied voice of this week's winner, please. All the tension in the air. Yes. It's cat. <gasps> Cat seals. Well, that was really interesting. I thought the yeah. were really interesting. Was it close? I have to say. It was very close. It was very interesting. Yeah, so. but you chose Cat. It's very interesting listening to Charles and Cat. Pride <laughs> 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 oh, comes before hubris sorry. has come and slapped <laughs> yeah. my face, hasn't it? There's still oh, well. next week. Like a, it was great, week. though. Like Kat. an I eel. Say, I think you. that. How come I we didn't know that thing about the mysterious oh. origin of eels? Oh, I forgot to say also. So I got to see. Do you know what where that is and what that is as well? Was it? The Bermuda Triangle. And now I understand. Well, there we are. There we there go. Are. So it's not because Freud cut out all their private parts. <laughs> That's a sort of Sigmund Freud. I didn't know Dissecting he was a hands-on. eels look for yeah. their testes. Mm. Extraordinary thought. Well, that started out. So, next week, we've got to decide on next week's topics as well. So, I am going to be looking for the best facts I can find on treasure hunting. Oh, mm. that's perfect for you, Kat. It is, isn't it? That's yeah. what you do, Kat. Okay, well, mm, well. Uh, and Charles, you're going to be looking at Charles II's mistresses. Thank you very much. Probably some of them in your own family tree, just saying. <laughs> Ooh, we'll have fun to find out. And Richard, you are going to be researching the lighthouse. Oh, thank you. Excellent. So I think we'll go home and delve swat into rubber holes and sort up yes. and bring some notes next time, maybe, Richard? Of course. Maybe, yeah. Copious yeah. notes. Okay, <laughs> fantastic. So that's it for this week's episode. Thank you, everyone, for listening. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review because that really does help people to find us. And we absolutely love reading the lovely reviews. You can also suggest some rabbit holes for us to fall down in future episodes by sending us an email, rabbitholedetectives at gmail.com. And thank you to everyone who's done so already from all around the world. Don't forget that each week, one of us will be in our new Rabbit Hole Detectives column in the Daily Telegraph discussing some of our favourite facts. So, in the words of Lewis Carroll's Alice... I don't know the meaning of half those long words. And what's more, I don't believe you do either. Goodbye. Goodbye. Bye.
Thank you.